funny that like people say, oh, don't be political in your approach. Uh, uh, power is everywhere. And so it, it allows you, criticality goes beyond deep and analytical thinking to allow a child to learn how to understand oppression and anti-oppression with the goal to disrupt it. And welcome ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, guys, gals, and non-binary pals to another episode of All the Above, a show that gives you an unstandardized take on education. I'm Jeffrey Garrett, one of your co-hosts, and I've been a middle and high school principal and a high school social studies teacher. And as always, I'm joined by... What up, family? It's Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. I'm a high school history teacher. This is my 17th year in the classroom. And this, of course, is all the above. Your home for news and analysis of all matters pertaining to our world of education. We want to welcome anybody that's joining us for the very first time. Um, and we definitely want to shout out those of you who've been with us since day one. We definitely see you, those day one AOTA family members. If you haven't already subscribed or given that thumbs up or any of that stuff, uh, please do so so we can keep these critical conversations going. Um, yeah, man, I'm feeling good, Jeff. How are you feeling today? Man, man, well, I'm feeling great today. Not just good. Today's Ooh. episode, man, I'm just, I'm fired up. I'm ready. Ooh, fired up, <laughs> ready. Well, I, I don't know, yes. Jeff, man. Our last episode, we we had a doctor in the building. We had Dr. Keel in the building. He was breaking down science and how we could use science to explore race and racism. I don't know, man. I don't know if we could follow it up with another doctor. I don't know. What do you say? What do we got on the agenda today? Well, Manuel, for today's episode, I am just so excited. I, it's incredible <laughs> the amount of excitement I have for our guest today. And we have an important streak going for the last three years of having nothing but the dopest guests here on All the Above. And that streak, I must report and announce, is going to be alive and yeah. well and intact for yet another week. Uh, our guest today is someone who I have come to just be incredibly inspired by and, um, and just love what she's bringing to the table in terms of perspective, knowledge, insight into curriculum and instruction um, in this particularly important historical moment. And you may have seen her, folks, on yeah. what I think is probably the most widely watched webinar out there in education this summer, um, put on by Haymarket Books and the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture. Shout out to the Schomburg up in Harlem. Um, it featured our amazing guest today, along with, and get this, the incredible, the amazing Bettina Love and Dina Simmons. And yes, folks, I am talking about none other than professor at Georgia State University and author of the amazing book. You need to go out and get it. Cultivating Wait, Genius, Dr. Of, of, Goldie of this Muhammad. Book? Yes, we are having on Dr. Goldie Muhammad today. And uh, we're going to get into nice. just some fascinating issues, not only about kind of the substance of her text and her framework for culturally and historically responsive literacy, but also, you know, how her work helps us think about, okay, everybody wants to do anti-racist education, right? But how do we do that? How do we actually take her framework, apply it to curriculum and, and instruction, and actually bring to life um, anti-racist education in the classroom? We're also going to talk a bit about her journey professionally and how she kind of stays engaged in the work. It is going to be fascinating. You definitely don't want to miss it. 
Absolutely fantastic. Can't wait for that. And if you're already familiar with her work, definitely want to check out this interview um, because we definitely dive deeper and, and, and ask her a little bit about what, what continues to drive her through all this, all this pushback and all this, this toxicity that's out there all of a sudden, all of a sudden, well, I guess it's always been around there, um, about, you know, bringing in so-called partisan politics and teaching about race and this and that. So we ask her what keeps her moving because we know some of you out there right now are doing your best and and you've been very, very, very passionate about this work, but the current the current environment, it's just, it's a really tough one. So, um, you know, so we hope her words can help benefit and, and motivate and re-energize you like they have um, for me, for sure. All right, but up first, we got to look at recent headlines in education in a segment that we like to call The Do Now. What up, AOTA family? If you are listening to this episode on Apple Podcasts, we would very much appreciate it if you scroll down to the bottom and leave us a five-star rating. And when you have time, if you write us a little review, we would love that. In fact, if you write a review for us and screenshot it and send it to us, we will send you back an AOTA show sticker for your laptop or your notebook or wherever you put your stickers, all right? So write us a quick review, screenshot it, send it to us over Twitter or Facebook or wherever, and we will send you back an AOTA show sticker. We love y'all. Thanks for listening. All right, folks, now it's time for the Do Now. Let's take a look at recent headlines in education, particularly some stories that you might have missed. Jeff, how are we doing the Do Now today? Well, Manuel, today we're going to uh, give some feedback, man. We're going we're gonna to issue some grades, dole out some, uh, some summative measures. We got a report card. All right. Report card, let's, let's take a look at how, how things are going so far, grade-wise. All right, Jeff, what's the, the first grade that we have for today? All right, man, well, first up today is an E. Excellent, yeah, <laughs> nice, excellent. Can't go wrong with excellent. Yes, I mean, E does stand for excellent, and that is, uh, is very important. It's just that in this particular case, it stands for expensive. And uh, if, if we were going to really be honest, we'd have a DE for damn expensive, okay? Uh, <laughs> Is that an official yes. measure? Is that an that, official price? How much that I TV? Mean, damn expensive. Look, <laughs> look here, here in LA, it sure is, man. Nice. It sure is. Yeah, so, so let's get into it here. Uh, this story comes to us by some, uh, some really interesting reporting coming from Kyle Stokes in yep. LAist, uh, which is a local uh, publication covering issues in education around the city. And uh, it is profiling some truly just amazing levels of spending uh, on the current uh, Los Angeles school board educations that are uh, school board elections that are taking place. Um, so here we go. Outside political groups have spent $11.3 million trying to influence two competitive races for LA Unified school board seats. This is on pace to perhaps surpass the record $14.8 million in independent expenditures that happened in 2017, which is really our last round of major contentious elections. Now, most of this spending is coming from charter school proponents and from LAUSD's Teachers Union, which is uh, the United Teachers of Los Angeles, or UTLA. Charter school advocates have spent $8.6 million, while UTLA has spent $2.3 million. 
The charter school money includes $3.8 million from California Charter Schools Association and $1 million from a group called Kids First, which is supported by Netflix founder Reed Hastings and another pro-charter school donor, Bill Bloomfield, who himself spent another $3.8 million in March through the primaries. Now, why are they spending so much? Uh, both union and charter school groups are trying to secure friendly majorities on the school board, and this year's results could tip the balance of power, or at least the perceived balance of power. Now, Manuel, um, I know we work in two different districts of vastly different sizes, but I don't care how big or small your district is, $11.3 million is damn expensive. Uh, damn expensive. Yeah, man. What say you about uh, the cash flow into these Los Angeles school board races? Yeah, that's eleven point three million so far. We still have a few weeks left before right. the actual, <laughs> you know, actual election day. And back in twenty fifteen, I think it was uh, like five point something million, and then it went up to fourteen point something million in twenty seventeen, and now we're headed right back there in twenty twenty. It's crazy how much spending has increased over time on these school board races for LA. And I could show you right now where a lot of that money is going because I happen to live in the uh, district of one of the, the seats that's up for um, up for grabs right now in this election. So I've been inundated with a ton, a ton of campaign mailers. And if you're not watching, if you're you know listening on the go, then you know obviously you're missing out on the, the dope graphics and the beautiful faces, but you're also missing out on seeing all these crazy campaign mailers that I've been getting all for just this one one race. So it's really wild. And the the mailers are, you know, classic, classic political fare. A lot of negative stuff, a lot of red and black in like, you know, bold font. And this one is a, uh, you know, she's against against funding LA public schools. And this one, the numbers don't lie. There are zero reasons to elect Scott Schmerlison. And it's just a whole lot of, you know, pictures of kids with you know, sad kids, they're sad because the schools are failing. And then pictures of happy kids who are who are happy. Oh, no, I can't find one. Happy kids, happy. It's, it's just sad kids. I know, yeah, it's just sad yes. kids. Um, but it's insane, man. It's insane how much stuff is is going out there. A lot of negative, a lot of negative campaigning. Now, the article by uh, Kyle Stokes, now shout out to the homie Kyle. Um, he does uh, specify how much money is spent or has been spent specifically on negative ads, and it's quite a bit. And honestly, like for me, the one of the biggest disappointments here is that you know uh, you think about school board and you think about a seat representing um, you know your community in this in this this national experiment for not ex experiment this this national endeavor to educate our youth uh, through public schooling. You would hope that it wouldn't take millions and millions of dollars to you know to have a chance at one of these seats. You would hope that there wouldn't be so much spending from the outside with folks with their own you know agendas on on either side. You would hope that we could just have principal discussions about the issues at hand and how to improve schooling experiences for all students in every neighborhood across, in this case, Los Angeles, uh, Los Angeles Unified. But here we are with what has become, you know, basically dumbed down to just a, a charter versus uh, union race. And that's an oversimplification in a major, major way. This is so much more than just like, you know, charter schools versus public schools, because obviously school boards are responsible for so much more than that. And all this money pouring into the race, so much of it has to do with folks' ideas and opinions about charter schools. Um, that To me, it's just really, really 
disappointing. Now me, I've always worked in public schools. I'm definitely a giant advocate for public schools. I believe that what works for any child should be uh, available to every child. And, and the way to do that is to improve the entire system. But at the same time, I understand that for a lot of parents who have school age kids right now, this isn't about waiting for the system to come around and get better. So if there's a, a charter school that's offering services that the local public school isn't, I totally understand supporting that charter school for sure. So I don't like things being dumbed down to just this like either you're for or against charters like blanketly. And that's what this race largely seems to have become, especially when you look at the, you know, the mailers that I just showed you and you look at um, just some of the discussions around here. Now, the um, I don't teach in this district, so um, and I don't have school uh, school age kids. I don't have any kids in this district. So that makes it so that I don't really follow LA Unified Politics nearly as closely probably um, as you might, Jeff. But I know that, you know, for the primary, I, I voted for the person that was endorsed by the teachers union because, you know, I'm definitely a union guy. And over the summer, that that particular person voted was one of the, the few votes against um, lowering the amount of money that's spent on school police. So, you know, in the wake of the killing of George Floyd and this national reckoning um, for for racial justice, L.A. Unified, the, the board considered defunding their police and eventually they voted to decrease the budget for school police by $25 million. And the, the person that I voted for in the primary, the union-backed person, voted against that. The union-backed person said he doesn't know that uh, defunding the police necessarily is the right move right now. And to me, that's you know that conflicts with my values in a major way. So honestly, I don't know who I'm going to vote for. And I know people listening right now and watching probably don't really care who I'm going to vote for because you might not even live in the same district. But just like that just to me is emblematic of the fact that this is m about more than just charter schools versus public schools. Yeah, um, I think you're 100% right on that, Manuel, that the, the reduction of the discourse uh, in these races to being like, well, either you're pro-charter or you're pro-district schools is both, I think, unhelpful and also dishonest on a certain level. Now, I'm not saying that because the issue of where people stand on charter schools is not important and certainly not you know, deeply controversial in lots of ways. Los Angeles, more than any other uh, of, the, of the truly you know, massive school districts around the country, um, has the greatest percentage of, uh, of its students attending charter schools, right? So there is very much you know, an issue here around you know, uh, sort of friendliness to charter schools versus friendliness to district schools that very much gets at like resources, jobs, et cetera. So I, you know, I'm, I'm in no way belittling that. I'm just saying there are also many, many other very important issues um, that are, you know, that need to be discussed. And the kind of you know winnowing down of the of the discourse to to just that I think is is unhelpful to voters and to and frankly even to educators to think about who do we want in charge of our system and making decisions about the massive you know. 10-ish billion dollar budget that the district has to spend every year, right? Um, the vast majority of which is not being spent on charter schools, right? So, um, so yes, I think you're 100% right about that. I also think, and you know, this, this is true of our political system overall, um, but we're seeing just this, what I would consider a gross, gross intrusion 
of money into local campaigns in a way that is corrosive to the integrity of the process, right? In a way that is making the threshold to enter these elections vastly more difficult for yep. regular people to, you know, to actually have any shot um, in these elections. And um, also, you know, sets up a set of like folks who have power in the equation who aren't actually really stakeholders in the outcome of the election, right? Yeah. Like, and we have to ask ourselves, like, why is Reed Hastings putting millions and millions of dollars into, you know, uh, from Netflix? Why is he putting millions and millions of dollars into this election, right? I guarantee you his kids are not going to his neighborhood public school, right? Um, and neither does anyone he know. So, like, the you know, the situation here is, like, it's this is the kind of dark underbelly of uh, of American politics, and it and it saddens me to see that expressing itself in this way in a school board election, where you know, perhaps naively, I you know, I I want to hope that we could still have maybe just a tiny bit more integrity, uh, you know, in the process that isn't just about you know purely how much money you can raise, you know, and that being your your ticket in. So, um, so I'm really just saddened about the, the kind of corrosive effect of big money in politics in general, when the reality is like what should be governing policy about schools is, you know, discussions about what's in the interests of kids and families, not discussions about, you know, rich people who don't want to pay taxes or rich people who want to undermine unions. Um, because they don't want unions in general to have power so they can be even richer, right? And I think that's some of what is bleeding into our system now, um, and it's distracting from the real issues about education and support of kids and families. Absolutely, absolutely. I have nothing more to add. You said it there. Uh, I, I, actually, I will add that um, I wish they would stop sending these campaign mailers because they're not uh, making a big difference, and they are killing a lot of trees. And um, Yeah, man. It seems yeah. like a waste. Seems like a waste. Joints cost like six dollars each, man. Man, <laughs> so, I got a yeah. stack of them, man. And yeah. they, they, I mean, these were just the school board ones, but you know, you add in all the ones for propositions and everything else, it's just like, damn. Yeah, I, I do think, man. Well, before we move to our next story, we probably should call out that a former guest on all the above is actually a candidate in one of these, uh, you know, hotly contested is true. Uh, board seats, and that is Tanya Franklin, um, Tanya Ortiz Franklin, who is uh, running for the um, board district seven, which is the um, kind of southern part of the city of Los Angeles. Um, so she is in the runoff, which is going to be decided on November 3rd. And I think, you know, folks are interested in learning more about um, Tanya. The, the subject of our show wasn't about, you know, a, a campaign for school board, um, but was actually about um, her time as a teacher in L.A. and as a someone who came into teaching through Teach for America. So it was really a conversation about Teach for America and kind of the alternate certification pathway to teaching. So. Um, folks might be interested in that, and I think we can throw the, the link to yeah, that we can episode link that below. Uh, below as well. For sure, for sure. All right, Jeff. Next story, next grade. The next grade that we have for today is a, um, a D. Mm. Wow, that's not, that's not so great, man. <laughs> you are correct. It's not so great. <laughs> um, this D stands for double block. Ah, okay. Nice. I like it. 
and we all love double block math, double block English. Well, this mm. uh, relates to a story pertaining to the value of social studies instruction in boosting students' reading scores. All right, oh, I so, like that. Yeah, sounds good. Uh, let's go ahead and get into it. So this story comes from the Heckinger Report in an article written by Jill Barche. And um, this story profiles that for years, schools have been cutting back on social studies and doubling down on reading instructions, especially in low-income schools. Yet reading achievement has remained flat and low for the last 20 years. Nationally, only about one-third of American students are reading proficiently at grade level, according to national benchmark tests. And among low-income students, it's even worse. Only one in five students is reading at grade level. So the conservative Thomas Forden Institute released some interesting new findings this fall, which looked at social studies instruction and its impact on reading achievement. And they found that elementary school students in the United States spend much more time on English language arts than on any other subject, but increased instructional time in social studies, but not increasing time in ELA, is associated with improved reading ability. The students who benefited the most from additional social studies time are girls and those from lower income and or non-English speaking homes. Jeff, are you surprised that um, increasing the instructional minutes on social studies instruction, uh, we should specify this uh, study looked at grades um, kindergarten through, through grade five. Um, are you surprised that increasing social studies instruction in those grades um, led to increased reading scores? Uh, surprised, not even slightly. Happy, uh, I am ecstatic and, and through the roof. Now, of course, this was just, you know, slight increases in scores, so maybe not, you know, not revolutionary. But uh, that said, you know, I think it's really interesting that this this is maybe one of the first time we've, we've seen some quantitative demonstration of this association here, right? And I think it is important to note that the findings of the report don't necessarily demonstrate causation, right? So it is unclear still that, you know, or they're not able to say definitively that it was the teaching of the social studies that caused the increase um, in, in reading scores. So for example, it might have just been that like there were stronger teachers who taught you know, social studies and whether they were teaching social studies or something else, those students would have learned more, you know, about reading right. just because of the quality of the instruction that they received, right? So it's important to note that. But I will say, that aside, it does not surprise me at all that students who are getting something other than just half a day of English and half a day of math, uh, you know, did better uh, in reading, right? If for no other reason, then kids are interested in stuff and having variety in content throughout the day and teaching them about the world that they live in and why it looks the way it does and, you know, what kinds of interesting things happened, you know, in the past. Uh, it does not at all surprise me that that would encourage kids to actually find interest in what they are then reading and being asked to, you know, to engage with via text. Um, also, what's really interesting about social studies as a content area is, yes, it is very knowledge heavy as a, you know, as a discipline, but also you're being asked to think, or at least if a class is, you know, doing a good job, I would argue, you're being asked to think critically, right? You're being asked to, to look at a set of facts and information and say, you know, how does this lead to this other thing? And do I think this is a good idea or a bad idea? And I think that kind of, you know, that kind of analytical thinking is something that, that 
um, not only develops students' ability to, you know, read and, and write well, um, but also is a, is a part of engagement, right? When you have an interesting question to answer, you're motivated to want to learn more about it, right? And so I'm, I'm excited that this, uh, that this research came out. You know, I don't know it's earth shattering necessarily, but it's, it's pretty cool and promising. And I hope we can bring more social studies back to our elementary, elementary schools. Um, we, we certainly need it in this country. Yeah, uh, so I agree with all that. And I bet there's a lot of folks watching right now or listening right now who are thinking, I told you so. When schools started moving <laughs> to double blocks of English, double blocks of math, you know, that, you know, if it, for anybody who entered the profession either before or during the No Child Left Behind era, you probably witnessed at your own school the amount of time spent on enrichment activities, on social studies, which shouldn't be enrichment. Um, on, on the sciences, that, that amount of time really seemed to dwindle a lot during the No Child Left Behind era as schools really focused on the, the English and math scores and getting those up. And I think this study shows what a lot of folks felt and were saying at the time, which is like, just because you do more of it doesn't automatically mean the scores are going to go up. And this story, what I appreciated about um, this article is that it, it pointed to the ongoing uh, I guess, discussion or debate about um, whether or not phonics instruction um, is, is the best way to go about things or having students lean on their, their background knowledge and contextual skills. And I'm, you know, I don't teach the early grades. I'm no reading instruction expert by any means at all. But to me, it does make a lot of sense that if you are having students engage in something that's more interesting to them or that's helping them learn about the world, it makes sense to me that that would be a way to, to boost their reading levels. The story mentioned a, um, a study where they had kids read a passage about baseball and they had to reenact um, this uh, half inning of baseball using these wooden figures. Maybe that's a famous you know study that everybody learns about when they're getting their credentials for uh, early grade teaching. I don't know. Um, this is my first time hearing about it. But in any case, it showed that students, even those who had um, limited reading abilities, but who understood baseball, they were able to um, engage with that passage and then and then conduct the activity, which goes to show that the background knowledge perhaps is is important. And here, and we're, when we're living in a world where so much is going on and kids have so many questions about what's going on, it just makes sense to have them engage in in some of these histories so they can learn about themselves and learn about um, you know the world that they are experiencing and do it in such a way that you know maybe maybe an offshoot of that is that reading scores go up. I mean, it makes sense to me. You know, I, I teach high school, so I, I I can't relate to the elementary teacher struggle of trying to decide how many minutes to spend on this, how many minutes to spend on that, or maybe not even trying to decide, but trying to fulfill the directives from from on high about how much how much time to spend on this or that. The article does point out that um, on average, teachers spend about 120 minutes on English language arts instruction and 28 minutes on social studies. And here we are in a world where you have um, terrorists in Michigan with Confederate flags on their property. Michigan was not part of the South. It's not heritage there. Uh, trying to kidnap the governor and do who knows what. Um, I think we need to engage in some social studies. I think I think we have a lot of reckoning to do. And kids, if kids are the future, kids definitely are, are the ones that we wanna help um, engage in some of, these, some of these understandings and some of these histories so that they can interact with the world in hopefully a more humanizing, positive way than what a lot of adults are doing right now. So, hey, sounds like a good story to me. It was a D for a double block, but you know, honestly, it, it might be more in the, you know, maybe B range since this was not a giant increase in the scores and we don't know 
necessarily that it was because it was social studies. So, you know, I'm going to give it probably probably a B. Yeah, I, I might even go a little higher, man. I might go in the in the B plus range because Ooh. I think it, you know, a book. We just you round were naming, that. We just round that. Come on, teacher. Just you know, could I get extra credit? Yes. Could I turn yes. to work all over the weekend and bring it back? <laughs> you know, it is here's here's I think, you know, another exciting and important part of this that, that we shouldn't miss, right? Which is um, there yes, the study that you named is, you know, is real and there's been numerous other similar types of studies that have shown that things that you have greater content knowledge about or contextual knowledge about, your ability to read about them increases dramatically, right? So, um, and you can even replicate this in very short order, right? By like giving someone a sort of Wikipedia entry about a topic, right? Oh, here's how, you know, cold fusion could work, right? Read this little Wikipedia entry and then read this complex scientific article and you'll be better at making sense of it with the background knowledge than you would, than you would have been without, right? And I think that's, that's pretty intuitively true for, for most people. Um, and I would say, yes, there's a certain extent to which social studies plays that role um, in school and can play that role, right? The sort of complementary, we're reading, you know, early 20th century American fiction and we're going to study about the Great Depression, you know, in social studies, right? And, and together we will, we will build content knowledge and understanding of these texts. Um, and that's true, but also for purely the diversification of the curriculum standpoint and the engagement standpoint and the excitement and the civic knowledge and awareness standpoint, um, I'm also excited to see that that this can um, that the expansion of social studies uh, has some support from a you know from a data perspective to be brought back into our curriculum because we need it desperately. Yeah, absolutely for sure. And just because we're both. Um, social studies teachers, or you were a social studies teacher, um, that doesn't mean we're, we're biased in this sense. We are completely <laughs> neutral, yes. unbiased voices here who fair, say fair and balanced. we need more social studies. That's what it is. Period. <laughs> yes, fair and balanced. Yes. Ugh. All right. All right, folks, that's it for today's Do Now. Uh, up next, we have a super dope seminar um, where we, you know, we actually will, you know, speaking of reading and speaking of, you know, knowing histories and stuff like that, we'll, we'll explore a little bit of that in this discussion with Dr. Goldie Muhammad. All right. So stay tuned. All right, folks, welcome to today's seminar. We are excited to have you. And I know for a fact that you are excited to be here today because we have an incredible guest with us. She is someone you have, I'm sure, uh, seen all over the interwebs on the, on YouTube and on Facebook Live and everywhere over the summer and this fall, um, you know, uh, just sharing her incredible wisdom and knowledge and framework around culturally and, her, and historically responsive literacy. She is none other than Professor Goldie Muhammad. Welcome, Goldie Muhammad, to all the above. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Jeffrey. It's such a pleasure to be here and to be in conversation with you. Yeah, well, we are thrilled that you're here with us today. And uh, folks, let me just tell you a little bit more about Dr. Muhammad. Uh, Dr. Goldie Muhammad is an award-winning associate professor at Georgia State University. Uh, she teaches literacy and language in the Department of Middle and Secondary Education. Dr. Muhammad began her career as a middle school reading, language arts, and social studies teacher. She then served as a district assistant curriculum director, where she was responsible for kindergarten through 12th grade literacy instruction, assessments, and PD. 
Dr. Muhammad received her PhD in Literacy, Language, and Culture at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Uh, her research interests include the social and historical foundations of literacy development within black communities and the writing practices among black women and girls. She explores 19th century black literary societies to understand literary literacy development and how the roles of uh, literacy can be reconceptualized in classrooms today. Dr. Muhammad is the author of the acclaimed new book, Cultivating Genius, an Equity Framework for Cultivating uh, Culturally and Historically Responsive Literacy. And if you haven't gotten your copy yet, you should get one right now. It looks like this. It's incredible. Um, and of course, you may have seen her on some of the most watched, most engaging live streams this summer discussing various issues of anti-racist education. Once again, welcome, Dr. Muhammad. We're so excited to have you here today, and I'm going to hand it over to Manuel for our first question. Yes, yes absolutely. thank you. Hi, thank Manuel. You. <laughs> thank you so much for making time out for us. We know you are in, in very high demand because your, your work is dope, you are brilliant, and I know I'm far from the only person who has benefited from, from hearing you over the summer and reading your work. So thank you so much for taking time out to be on our show. If you're watching or listening to this episode and you don't already have the book like i don't know what you're doing but definitely finish listening to this episode and then check underneath we'll have a link for uh for you to purchase this book um at scholastic because it's 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 really really dope so dr muhammad um let's start by you know for, for folks who aren't that familiar um with your framework so your framework for culturally and historically responsive literacy um, really focuses on four four learning pursuits so um identity intellect criticality um, and skills. Now, for folks who aren't familiar, can you maybe give us an overview of, of what those mean and how does this approach differ from how teachers have traditionally been, been taught to, uh, to, to teach? Yeah, so, you know, as I was studying these Black literary societies throughout the 1800s, I really wanted to know what were some of the learning goals that they had when it comes to literacy learning, but also for educational learning, not just thinking about like English language arts or literature. I also thought about mathematics and science and history. And so when I was studying the historical archives, like um, uh, public addresses that they had given during that time, old newspapers that they had published in, I came to an understanding that they essentially had these four major goals for learning and they called their learning goals pursuits. And so they did not call them learning standards because I found that learning standards comes more from Eurocentricity. It's a word that sort of like seeped in whiteness. It wasn't a word that communities of color use to describe their learning goals. And so of the four goals, the first was identity development. I, I noticed that every time they were reading and writing and thinking and learning, they were making sense of who they are, who they were, who they weren't, who they wanted and desired to be. You know, so all the complexity that comes, uh, comes with identity, they were making sense of their lives. And they were also learning about the lives of other people. They would read and learn from literature from all over the world, including China. And so they didn't just, they didn't just uh, focus on themselves, but they wanted to learn about other people who were different than them as well. 
And then the second goal or pursuit that they had was skills. They were trying to gain the skills and the proficiencies uh, for mathematics, for science, for all the different content areas, right? And so uh, like comprehension, I mean, things that we would normally see like in a common core state standard today. The third pursuit is intellectualism. All learning was connected to action. That's the difference that I describe in the book from knowledge to intellectualism. The difference is that one is more action oriented, like intellectualism. And so as they were reading and writing and thinking and learning, they were becoming smarter about new ideals and concepts and people and places and things. They weren't just learning to develop skills alone. And the fourth uh, pursuit that they had was with criticality. Now, this was an interesting one. I originally named it, which a lot of people don't know, print authority, because it was like they were learning, they would see themselves with identity, they would learn the skills with skills, they would learn the intellectualism, and they would use it to put their own critique and interrogate it to get to gain authority of the text. Right. Um, you know, we have authority of something when we know it, when we know it well enough where we can debate on it and where we can critique it. You can't just stand in a room talking about any topic if you don't have any knowledge and you need the identity and the skills to get to that knowledge. So you can see how they were all connected. But criticality went a little further. Criticality was an understanding of equity, oppression, anti-racism. Um, it was helping them to understand issues of marginalization, exploitation, and representation. And a criticality, I'll just lastly add, it was something that helped them to, in their own words, I'm, I'm quoting here, it helped them to be able to discern between truth and falsehood at a glance. That was one of their major purposes for education. And this is something that can be useful for all students. And if I added a fifth pursuit, it would be joy. Because I noticed that even in the most turmoil of conditions and harshest and oppressive and racist times, they still loved each other and was able to uh, cultivate joy with each other, which is very remarkable. Um, because when you have a lot of pain and struggle and everything is about resistance to then say, you know what, we're going to, we're going to have joy. That's a beautiful, remarkable, humane kind of quality. And so the difference, um, to respond to your second question, when we take a look at those, let's say five pursuits, if we added joy compared to what we see in schools and classrooms, schools and classrooms are largely solely or mostly pushing skills. Everything is about skill development. And it's not as much, unless you have very unique classroom spaces about application. Even our common core state standards are grounded in skill development. We don't have uh, adopted equity standards, identity standards, criticality standards, and how lovely it would be if we did, right? And so that's the difference. Our system is really, um, from the 1600s to today, we are still pushing skills, 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 uh, evaluating teachers on their ability to teach the skills, assessing skills, and that's what I'm trying to come away from, be more comprehensive and be more excellent. 
Yeah, I just, you know, this is probably like the 10th or 12th time I've, I've heard you explain uh, your framework, Goldie, and, uh, and it never gets boring because I feel like each time I hear you describe it, I take away something new. And, um, you know, you, you were just making me think about um, the, the kind of phrase that I know has become, you know, more popular in recent years of like, I am my ancestor's wildest dreams. And when I when I think about what that, you know, like on the ground, what does that really mean? Uh, and I think about it through the lens of education, right? And, and think back to people who were gathering to read and educate themselves in a context in which that was either illegal or incredibly, in a, in a very direct, physical way, dangerous work to engage in. Um, you know, the idea that, that today we can bring that work or continue that work in our classrooms with our young people is, uh, is just such a powerful, powerful yeah. way to conceptualize what our work is about, I think. Um, and, and one component of your, of your framework around criticality, I think, you know, Manuel and I were talking a bit about because as social studies teachers, I think every social studies teacher out there prides themselves on being someone who teaches kids to do critical thinking, right? Yeah. Um, to like look at some facts and, you know, what were the causes of World War One or, you know, whatever it is, right? And not just sort of accept information without some type of critical thinking. And I'm wondering if you can give us some insight into what might be different about your conception of criticality from maybe the kind of traditional teacher notions of critical thinking. Yeah, and that's a great question. Thank you, Jeffrey. And I get it. I get that question a lot from teaching because from teachers, because we see the critical in criticality. Um, the way I'm conceptualizing criticality is more connected to critical theory, critical race theory, um, theories that take on a lens of understanding race, power, gender, um, and all these things that have sort of been categories related to uh, marginalization um, or dominance and things like that. So when I think about, um, I, in my work, I use lowercase c for critical versus uppercase c to distinguish the difference. So critical thinking is more deep and analytical thinking. We certainly want our students to have that and to do that. Criticality goes a step forward, is deep and analytical thinking, but not just that, but specifically about social political consciousness, is deep and analytical thinking about power, even if the power comes from the self about, um, and Richard Wright said, there's power, um, there's protests in every piece of literature. There's power everywhere. Everything you read is political. It's funny that like people say, oh, don't be political in your approach. Uh, uh, power is everywhere. And so it, it allows you, criticality goes beyond deep and analytical thinking to allow a child to learn how to understand oppression and anti-oppression with the goal to disrupt it. It's like helping them to become racially literate with the goal of disrupting the hurt and harm that is inflicted on human beings, on the land, on animals, right? Because that can all be a part of marginalization too. So that's the difference. It takes a deep, a deep um, look um, 
to really address power and inequity and things like that. So you can look at an image as an example. You know, I just remember the image of all these men sitting around the table talking about women's reproduction rights, right? Um, you can you can analy- analytically analyze <laughs> that picture or that image or that segment, but the person with criticality is going to read for what's not there as well. They're going to, as they're reading for what's not there, they're going to understand the power of gender dynamics. They're going to take it a step further. So it still involves critical thinking, but just more social politically uh, conscious kind of uh, learning. I know exactly which photo you are referencing. I've used that so many times in my, yes. my civics class. And I was like, uh, what's wrong yeah, with this so, here? Yeah, exactly. This picture. All right. So when your when your book came out, there was a lot of excitement around it. I I, I think I remember reading um, on Larry Falazzo's blog. I think he interviewed you interviewed you about the book. Shout out to to Larry Falazzo and his blog on um, on Ed Week. And then the pandemic hit, and the world flipped upside down. And then George Floyd happened. Um, George Floyd was murdered, and then all of a sudden you had this national reckoning. This this huge boost in people in education circles talking about being anti-racist and wanting to um, bring in anti-racism into schools. And then you had a series of summertime webinars and professional development. That's where I first encountered um, your work through through the one of the uh, webinars, I think it was with Dina Simmons and, and Dr. Bettina Love, the abolitionist uh, teaching one, which I think has like so, so many views on YouTube. Um, because it's so, so great and so powerful. And after the summer of, of anti-racism being, being talked about and, and equity being talked about all over the place um, with regards to education, and then the backlash seemed to happen in terms of from the White House targeting the 1619 Project and, and, and threatening to defund schools that were um, using um, anti-racism in their practices and threatening to defund program training programs that used critical race theory. So we are in just a really, really remarkable year where so much is happening, and it just so happens to be the year where um, where this this great work of yours has been really the talk of the town, at least amongst the the dope educators who know who know what this is really about. So we're hoping we could get your sense on on what your your reading is of the the state of affairs in in teaching right now. Given the distance learning pandemic, this backlash from the White House, and just the the ongoing uh, racism and bigotry, and and all of this, it's just so much. So, if you could maybe give us your your take on where we are right now. Yeah, that you said a lot of great words there, and a lot of realness. Um, and you know, it's important to note that, like we conscious folks we live a world of criticality. We embody it. We don't just talk about it. Like, so every time um, I am looking around my environment, I am reading the world in a critical lens. And the folks who are here today that have been doing that work, we are only building the lineage of not only scholars and but leading thinkers and abolitionists, they, we have we're only sort of like reiterating what we have always been saying. And while we are reiterating it, the folks who are uh, 
opposing it are doing what they do, what they have always done historically. So it's never a shock to see the opposition against humanity. And I say that because this is not a political agenda for me. This is a human agenda. <laughs> We're talking about people not being hurt and harmed in ways that they have been, getting equitable rights and all these things. So the message has is being told in different ways. I tell my message more so through curriculum or I attempt to, right? Um, and so I think with everything with the pandemic and folks, for some people that woke some folks up, but some people it's like, okay, this is just another example, you know, with Breonna Taylor's death and, and, and our other brothers and sisters and George Floyd, you know, that for some people, they're like, oh my gosh, we need to focus on equity. We need a statement. And so, and some people put out these statements for the first time because they didn't want to lose business or lose students. But it's like, why not? Like, why didn't you do this stuff before? This stuff has been happening. <laughs> so I think, but I'm not, you know, anytime somebody wake up and they're authentic with their consciousness, you know, that's always a good thing. And so we are seeing a, a shift. Some people may say another shift where people are uh, putting forth more equitable agendas, using more equitable language in schools and classrooms. I think the pandemic and virtual teaching um, is helping people to understand the importance of human connection and why we need it. Um, it's also helping people to understand the the difficulties and the unique situation of a teacher. You know, teachers go through a lot. <laughs> they have to do a lot. And I think people are starting to, to highlight the real work. If not, I hope that they are because it is no job on earth like it. So, you know, I'm seeing that folks are, are taking up my model and wanting to try it with their unit plans and their learning. I'm seeing that people are at least bringing more equitable and conscious building text into the classrooms. Um, and some people are just simply feeling, they, they might be not doing anything in action, but they are feeling something different, something more compassionable, something more equitable. But, you know, I got to tell you, it does not matter if we are a virtual learning in a pandemic or in person without a pandemic until our systems and structures change in this U.S. context, until we have these systemic and systematic uh, um, healing uh, against these policies and with our brothers and sisters being shot. And it's almost like no, no, um, charges are being brought it's almost like it's a process of e erasing our humanity is what's happening and so as long as we have this and have the schools that mimic those same incomplete racist steeped in whiteness systems we're going to see the same thing and we'll see some people jumping on board with consciousness and some people like still behind or doing it in inauthentic ways. And so, you know, we need more systemic and structural changes. We need better uh, learning standards. We need better policies in the United States. And it's almost like the leadership 
and so-called leadership is going backwards. They're going backwards, saying that we cannot do, it's, you're trying to erase our histories, you're trying to erase our humanities, saying that this is not racist, but then what is it? Are all these people lying about their experiences? Come on. We don't need any more proof of racism and inhumanity. But folks' hearts are really messed up for people to experience death while sleeping, and they do not lose any sleep themselves. That, that, that is, that's, that we have, we had a pandemic before we had a pandemic mm. of hate. And that's what it is. Mm. Profound words, um, Goldie. I appreciate that. And um, you know, if if we are to rectify, I think what you're what you're describing there, there's a lot of work to um, to be done. I think in terms of maybe reshaping or or creating some new direction in in the field of education to kind of bring that into life. And I'm wondering if you can can share with us your thoughts about, you know, if if we were to see, you know, the norm be teachers who are who are teaching in ways, you know, in, in culturally and historically responsive ways. And, you know, to borrow a phrase from um, a friend of yours, the, the one who wrote the uh, the foreword uh, to your book, Dr. Bettina Love, you know, if we were to see schools that are not spirit murdering our children. Uh, you know, what needs to change in teacher training, what needs to change in, in you know, the way we think about school accountability. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, you're right. And, and it's spirit murdering a lot of black and brown teachers, too, um, who are trying, who've been on this for a long time now. Um, so, you know, I think about if we had a playbook, it would involve five different areas. And you mentioned uh, some of them. Uh, the first is teacher education. You know, ideally, if I had the dream of reconfiguring teacher ed programs, I would put colleges of education within Black studies or cultural studies departments, where the foundation for the learning would be understanding um, history, uh, institutions, structural things, the personal self, and then, of course, methods and pedagogy and things like that. But the reason why teachers struggle so much with teaching black and brown students, I mean, part of it is that they don't have a system that supports the teaching of black and brown students. But another big part of it is that they don't deeply understand the histories, identities, literacies, and liberation of black people. And black people was a great starting point. Uh, if you want to get it right with everyone else because of the diversity um, and all the different variations of identities and experiences within Blackness. Um, so I would have that. I would have more Black and Brown theorists like Mary McLeod Bethune and Anna Julia Cooper and folks being taught instead of your Vygotskys and Deweys all the time. Like actually teach and learn from people who have authentic work with working with students of color, especially those who had come up from slavery. Um, and so the courses need to be designed differently. I think we need a course that just what my best friend calls archaeology of the self, right? Just a course that focuses on your ideologies, your upbringing, your beliefs, 
your racism, your sexism, your homophobia, whatever you have been conditioned to believe. Because if it does, you have to start with the self. It can't give you a toolkit <laughs> when you haven't done the self work. So I would also, um, and like I said, I would teach about black historical excellence. That has to be one of the courses and black, that's why I said black and cultural studies are important. Um, another uh, change that's needed are learning standards that are equitable, that are framed to address identity, intellectualism, and criticality. The social studies standards in most states don't even have the word race and racism in it. How is that possible? So we're not even giving social studies educators and, and students in social studies classes like an opportunity to really learn at a scholarly level of the study of the social context of the world. Um, I would also change uh, curriculums that schools adopt. Stop spending money on curriculum that's seeped in skills only. That's not going to help the child. We spend millions of dollars Okay, and so stop adopting these, hold these pu publishing companies more accountable for writing a curriculum for black and brown students. A lot of like major cities have 85% or more, and it's the same curriculum you can see anywhere, 85% or more black kids and brown students, black and Latino. And so how do you have this same white curriculum? That does not make sense to me. And lastly, um, in this like playbook, I would change, um, well, two more things, assessment, right? We, we assess, we gather information on what we value. If we value skills only, we're gonna assess skills only. But we can assess identity development, we can assess criticality, we can have measurements for that. If we are trapped in smallness, we cannot see what that assessment looks like. But if you are a researcher, we can study anything we question. And then the last, um, the last one is teacher evaluation. And I'm and not just teacher evaluation, but recruitment and hiring. That needs to change. I worked with a school district in the Bronx and we redid their recruitment strategies. We we do not wait for teachers to come to us. We go out and recruit the brightest and the best. We um, reframe their interview questions. We have to stop asking questions that do not get at anti-racism or culturally and historically responsiveness. And we redid their, um, the protocols. Once they are coming in for an interview, uh, they need to meet with students. They need to meet with parents. Everybody needs to sign off on this teacher. They need to know that this is a community thing. They need to demo a lesson on anti-racism. Let's stop trying to remediate uh, teachers with racism, like let's not hire them. This is not the job for them. This is not a training ground kind of position. You know, that that's just, especially when you're in uh, communities that have historical, you know, problems around racism and marginalization. And so when we get those five elements to be more stronger and more complete, We'll see, a di we'll see different outcomes, as people say. We'll see different types of teaching. We'll see different joy. We'll see different achievement. Mm. That I'm, gonna, is I'm just 
Yeah, I'm gonna just officially say I think quote of quote of the day today is uh, let's let's stop trying to remediate teachers with racism, uh, and and I might even expand that to say educators generally. Yeah, um, educators. Yeah, yeah. not leaders, principals, <laughs> superintendents, because it starts with leadership. If the leadership, it, a leadership push racism or non-racism you know and and teachers are typically going to follow a lot of the leaders and so it starts with let's stop hiring certain superintendents and 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 because there's a lot of racist things that come out of their mouths too around the country so you're right yeah absolutely and and for folks listening or watching i mean that playbook there's so much in there we know a lot of you are educators of various levels and and a lot of that is within your purview. I mean, something as simple as looking at your school's recruitment strategies for teachers and interview protocols. I mean, a lot of that is within your purview. So if you're listening to this, and you're like, yeah, somebody should do that. Yeah, somebody, they need to do that. You are they, you are, you have the power over, over a lot of these, a lot of these elements. So thank you, Dr. Muhammad, for sharing, for sharing that because uh, there's, there's. I was that. recruited too. I didn't know how I was recruited to about 10 years after I'd learned the story. Oh, really? And yeah, it was somebody as a district level administrator named Judy Smith. Uh, she was over curriculum and instruction. And she went to the college of the local college of education at Southern Illinois University, where I went to undergrad. And they, we had like a little mixer of the students in the program and the professors. And she went to the program coordinator, the professor over it. And she said, uh, who's your top student? And the professor I learned pointed to me. Nice. She said, if you don't do anything else, you need to hire her. And Judy did not talk to me. She didn't ask no questions. She greeted me and everything. She just uh, offered me a job. She told me to apply. But you know what? She had a lot of forward thinking. Why not do something like that? Yeah. The professors know. Absolutely. That's super. <laughs> I mean, I feel like they do that in business schools and law schools. It's, it's that sort of thing. Uh, many in case in if you're working at a school with mm -hmm. marginalized population they deserve the best of the best teachers and yeah absolutely wow that's dope yeah. all right so last question um we know you are in very high demand because you have become a very powerful um and important voice um particularly this year in light of of the summer uprisings and you know there's uh you know as as you Fight the good fight and and speak up against white supremacy and oppression in, in all of its forms in our schools. Um, we we would love to know where where do you draw the the strength and, and inspiration to continue on with this work because we know it's very heavy work and it's very challenging work and we got a lot of teachers out there who who want to do their part but just feel that they um, are are running uphill trying to do it. So we're wondering if you could share with us a little bit about where you draw your your strength and inspiration from for this work. Yeah, I mean, that's also a beautiful question. I love all your questions. Um, and it's something we all need to ask ourselves. And it's important that we don't just draw our strength from one space or... Um, and so I draw my strength from my faith. Uh, being a literacy educator, a literacy scholar, uh, it makes sense to me because Islam as a religion and a faith is very connected to how I respond to oppression. And, and so that it, it, it just kind of makes sense to me. I also draw from my family and my people, um, my grandmother. I'm in Gary, Indiana right now, and I got to spend some time 
with my 94 year old grandmother. And, you know, I just, I sat and sort of just talked with her and, you know, just seeing her journey and living through so much and just the, the joy and the hope that she still has, you know, and like her and our ancestors, they just kept going and they went through it. Like my grandmother has been through it and she's still here and she still ha has the belief and the faith. And if they could do all that for us, that we can be here, certainly we can keep going, right? Um, if the dogs were chasing them and all this uh, horrific things, uh, historically, you know, we can keep going. But it's important that we have a village of folks like you all, like to be in company and conversations with folks that will affirm us. Um, that will celebrate us and encourage us to keep going and to keep going further and stronger and to live up to our potential. That's truly important. You can't have folks in your village who are complaining, who are struggling. Uh, they can be struggling, but you can't have a whole village of strugglers <laughs> uh, or complainers. You know, we you need people who are action oriented. You need people who have uh, pure hearts and work toward the purity of the heart. So the village is what keeps me going. And of course, lastly, I'll just say the youth. I People who know me, I teach kids on a regular basis. I don't care if I have to, uh, as a teacher, can I volunteer and teach your students? You know, I do that a lot. I do, um, you know, volunteer teaching. I teach uh, youth in every summer. And so it's, it's their... It's, it's like their eyes and their minds and their genius. It's just like, if I'm tired, it gives me strength. And, you know, they're so innocent. And especially when they haven't experienced the harshness of the world, it is so much beauty in them and their thinking and their ideas. And I learned so much for them. You know, I learned how to move forward. And so it's them, it's the teachers, the teachers, you know, teachers inspire me because of the incredible work that they do. Um, so, yeah, and it's just the, the, the taste of freedom. When you start to have any kind of taste of freedom, you want it for other people. You want it for your brothers and sisters. You want it for your students. And it's just that, that, that taste you may have a little taste but you want more you know like when you eat cake or something <laughs> you can't just have one bite of freedom uh, you know you got to keep going and so that's what it feels like for me a lot of the time <laughs> yes wow well i think uh that's that's a beautiful place for us to uh put put a pin in it for now and uh bring today's conversation to a close and uh, we really just want to thank you, uh, Dr. Muhammad, for, for being with us today, for sharing your words and your, your wisdom with us. Mm -hmm. And folks, if you have not yet gotten your copy of the book, it is Cultivating Genius, an Equity Framework for Culturally and Historically Responsive Literacy. Um, the link is below on the video here, or it's below if you're listening to the podcast. Click down into those notes and get the link um, and go to that Scholastic website, get your copy. Um, I know earlier this summer, it was it was hard for a while to get one, but it's- Yeah, as man, far it, was, it was sold out <laughs> everywhere. Yeah, but as far as I understand, they have replenished the stock. So go get your copy of the book 
it, it will be worth your, your time and energy. And uh, Dr. Mohammed, thank you so much for joining us here on All the Above today. Uh, thank you for having me. It was so wonderful being with you all. All right, folks, next up is today's Class Dismissed. Stay tuned. Hey, folks, thanks for being a big supporter of All the Above. We really appreciate it, and we need your help. All you need to do is go to aotashow.com support. That's aotashow.com support. There, you can chip in via Venmo, via Cash App, or most importantly, you can go to our Anchor page and subscribe there. Everything you can do to help us helps us put together incredible content here on All the Above and make sure you're getting the best each and every week. Thanks. Enjoy the rest of the show. All right, folks, it's time for Class Dismissed, where we like to give shout outs to great things happening in the world of education. Jeff, what do we got for today? Oh, man. Well, today we have, I think, a really interesting shout out to give. And we, this is a subject we've talked a bit about uh, on the show in some, some recent episodes, which is kind of the modern day redlining that has happened with access to high speed Internet service. And uh, here in our city of Los Angeles, um, we see just just bizarre things that you wouldn't expect to see um, in, in this kind of digital redlining experience. And the reality is that there are whole swaths of the city of Los Angeles that don't have any meaningful access to high-speed internet access. And one of the uh, most heavily impacted parts of the city is the city's public housing developments. Now, the public housing developments, many of which have no access to high-speed internet, right? No cable, no um, fiber optic, nothing. That's crazy. Right? Crazy, right? So thankfully, um, thanks to some good work coming out of the mayor's office in the city of Los Angeles, several different community organizations pushing for this over many years, and a partnership with um, Starry, who's a um, kind of startup internet service provider that's looking to help serve, in particular, lower income parts of the city that, that the big companies, Verizon, AT&T, Comcast, yes, we're looking at you, uh, <laughs> who have redlined poor black and brown people out of your service. Um, you know, Starry's looking to, to fill that void along with a, a partnership with Microsoft. And they just uh, recently announced that they are going to be expanding service in particular in four of um, the city's housing developments in South Los Angeles and in Watts, which is going to, for the first time, bring high-speed internet access to communities that need it most, and especially in this day and age when the city of Los Angeles, the whole city and the whole county really, is on distance learning. So imagine being at home and all you have to access your Zooms at school is like maybe your parents' phone or a sibling's phone, right? Or if you're lucky, a hotspot from the district that might you know, have enough data to last you for, for part of the month. Right. So this is this is a huge development. It's still, you know, still needs to come into fruition. But they announced the plans. They're coming out with the timeline. It's going to provide six months of free service for folks. And then after that, my understanding is going to be something like fifteen dollars a month for families. Right. So certainly way more affordable than uh, the big ISPs and better quality service than the low income plans those ISPs offer. So we want to give a shout out to the city of L.A. We want to give a shout out to 
Starry and Microsoft for their um, you know good work in this area, and we want to welcome uh, you know soon hopefully the folks uh, in the housing developments in South Los Angeles to um, you know to the connected home high speed internet world, and um, you know wish them well as they enjoy this new service. Yeah, shout out to Starry. That's dope. Yeah. I I can't believe yet. I can totally believe. Um, that these public housing communities haven't had high-speed internet like this. It's 2020. Like, it's crazy. What in the world? It's totally crazy. What in the world? Man. All right, folks. So, I mean, think about it. If you watched or listened to the whole episode from the top, I mean, we, we covered crazy amounts of spending for local school board races. We covered uh, social studies instruction and its impact on, on reading scores. We brought a super, super dope, phenomenal guest author, professor extraordinaire, Dr. Goldie Muhammad, to talk about her culturally and historically responsive literacy framework. And um, and you just learned that they've brought some, or are bringing some broadband internet to some public housing communities in Los Angeles that have been essentially, to, to, to quote the great uh, Jeff Garrett, redlined out of broadband internet access. Man, we covered a lot this episode. And what other show, what other podcast, what other education YouTube show brings you so much dopeness in, in, in one chunk? Like, I, I just don't think it happens, and especially as consistently as it happens from all of the above. So if you haven't already, please do consider recommending our show to anybody that you that you know who cares about these issues in education. And if you haven't already, please consider writing us a review on, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast so folks know that, that our show exists and that, that we out here. All right? Until next time, see ya.